Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 11, Matthew 11, all right, turn, turn a click in your Bibles and we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? So John the Baptist is sending messengers. We get this story in Luke 7 too, if you want to kind of be cross-referencing as we go. And it starts with the phrase, now it came to pass. This is Matthew's uh, way in, uh, when he writes as a writer, this is his way of saying that we're starting a new section. So we've finished what's called like the first block. There's five major teachings in the book of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those. And then it's followed with miracles that backs it up. And then it's followed by some kind of teachings for the disciples that come after that. So we're, we're heading into kind of a new set of teachings and we, we saw in the first couple chapters that Jesus is the legitimate king. Then we heard in the Sermon on the Mount the message of the king. Then we heard, saw in 8 and 9 the works of the king. Then we saw in chapter 10 the apostles of the king and what it means to be sent out like as a knight errant for the king in this new kingdom. And then Jesus in chapter 10 told the, the cost. Like there's a cost to be paid when you come to work in the kingdom. So the followers are challenged to break with the world entirely and follow him entirely. Uh, it's, it's a full commitment kind of chapter. All or nothing is what we're picking up from chapter 10. And then Matthew just turns and notice it says when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples. Matthew goes out of his way before and after chapter 10 to make sure we know that not everybody that Jesus is teaching is an apostle. There's 12 apostles. There's multitudes of people listening to his teaching. And, it's, and I think that for me, years of being a believer, just learning the word, learning the scriptures, we shouldn't feel shame over those years of learning and growing and waiting upon the Lord's voice. And I think a lot of people get saved and they want to be one of the 12 right off the bat. And I think Jesus kind of releases that valve. And when he says when Jesus finishes commanding his 12 disciples, he's not necessarily commanding the multitudes. He's teaching and preaching with the multitudes. First, you got to learn what the kingdom is before you can be a, a knight for the kingdom. So this, we go to the new topic in chapter 12. How do we recognize who Jesus is and the works of Jesus? Like, how do we know this is Jesus in our life? And specific, I mean, he's right there. He's got these followers of John that come up and they don't seem to be catching on. So we had followers of John that came and critiqued his fasting, right? Why don't you fast like we do and why, like the Pharisees do? So it could be the same disciples are really working through this and they got some issues. But we see this progressive opposition to Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount. Like the Sermon on the Mount is great. It's fluffy. It's welcoming, except for the whole you're going to get persecuted part. And then it models it all right up to where he tells his disciples you're going to get persecuted. And then we get this intimate discussion in chapter 10. And now we get this tour that happens. So it says he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. The there there 
you could read that as the 12 disciples' hometowns, but remember he just sent the disciples out to go to 20 or 30 little villages north of Galilee. So when it says their cities, it's the cities they were assigned to go announce the king in. So they were sent out to go to each of these cities and say, Jesus is coming, get ready, here comes the king. And it's like if we did a tour of South Minnesota, it's not that they're going to the suburbs in the big city. They're not going to Jerusalem. They're not going to those towns. They're going out to these little small farm towns north of Galilee. So again, it'd be like, we're going to go down to Mankato and Owatonna and Farmington and Owatonna, and we're going to go out to all these little towns around the south, and you're going to walk into the town centers and say, Jesus is coming, get ready to meet the Messiah. So he's going out to their cities, meaning he's following behind those apostles, and he's kind of talking to them. So it's while he's out doing this in these small towns that these two disciples of John, verse 2, show up. And they had heard in prison about the works of Christ. So we just saw that in chapter 8 and 9. He's healing people. He's, when it comes to blindness, deafness, dumbness, demon possession, paralytics, he's healing people's backaches. Like Jesus is out healing people, and that's what he does. So the disciples are commanded in verse 1 to go do that and to, f- to f- repeat what he said and repeat what he did. So I think for the disciples, we don't get to see the inside of this, but that had to be a rush, right? You go out and say, you're, you're, we're gonna, you can now see in the name of Jesus, and people could actually see. And in their humanity, I'm thinking Peter and James and John are like, we didn't do anything. It's not a force of our will that healed he'll blindness. It's simply that Jesus is responding to these prayers. So when v- Jesus finished commanding them, to teach and preach. I don't know why, but I, this is where I like looking up the Greek. When you see two words that in the English kind of mean the same thing, I kind of want to know the difference between teaching and preaching in, uh, at the end of verse 1. So teaching is didasco. It's where we get the word didactic. It means to instruct or to instill a doctrine. It's here's what we believe and let me teach you what our distinctives are. So that's teaching. Uh, teaching is so that you can repeat or imitate somebody who taught you something rabbis and students. Preaching, kerieso, uh, is to proclaim or herald something, where we get kerieleism, right? It's that idea of proclaiming or announcing something. It, is, it connotes that you would be speaking for a king. So someone who preaches would go to that middle courtyard and then make an announcement. The king says, the king is here, and you'd be speaking on behalf of. So to teach is to tell people what the king said, to proclaim or herald, would be to announce something that the king has for you, right? And so teaching and preaching take a little bit different meaning. And when we conflate the two, sometimes we miss some nuances in what's being said there. Verse two, when John had heard from prison, John's in prison right now. Remember Herod dumped his wife so he could marry his niece. Is that how that works? And then he marries, it's weird, sick stuff, but uh, he basically makes these marital moves and John says, well, the Bible doesn't say that that's okay. Not why Herod would care what John the Baptist thinks, I don't know. But John the Baptist questioned his moral high ground and said, when you go dumping your wife to marry some younger girl that's also a relative, that's wrong in so many ways. Uh, it's not even funny. Well, he ends up in jail for that, um, that you don't dare question Herod in that kind of way. Um, so that's where he's going on. We get more of John's story in chapter 14, so I'm kind of going to, I think this passage skips it, so am I, kind of. Uh, it talks about the people and events that are there, the works of Christ, that he is doing things and moving things, and he sent off his disciples 
a pempo, not apostle, to dispatch or thrust them. The word there he sent, when John sends two of his disciples, it's not the same word where Jesus sent out his disciples. When Jesus sent them, it was apost, apost, uh, uh, aposto, uh, apostello. When John sends them, it's the word pempo. And I think this is a big deal because there's ways to read this, what's going on here. So you got these two disciples that come out of where John is in jail and he sends them pempo. It means he pushes them out. So it's a lot different than just sending someone on a mission. So he's in this dungeon in Herod's palace and east of the Jordan, which by the way, in archaeology, they're just digging this place up. Like you can go in and see a Herod's palace. So we actually think we know the place where John's head would have been brought. Like those stones are being dug up right now, which is kind of cool. So John, uh, John's in that prison cell and he pushes out his disciples. Why is he doing that? Matthew 9, 14, if you just flip back a page, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast so often and your disciples don't fast? So they're questioning Jesus back in chapter 9. It's implied then that they went back to John to go gossiping about what Jesus, well, Jesus is doing this and Jesus is doing that. You were hardcore holiness and Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so they're, they're questioning what Jesus does, but they're not looking at what his works are. They're looking at how he does them. And there's an issue there with them. So odds are these are the same disciples that went back to John to complain. And the word pempo there, sent, he pushes them away from him again. And he's pushing them because way back in Matthew 3, John tried to prevent Jesus from getting baptized. You remember this? And he said, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? And then in 3.11, he says, he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He must increase, I must decrease, 3.30. John made it really clear to his disciples, go follow Jesus. And these two disciples apparently aren't doing that. They keep running back and forth and reporting to John what's going on. And you have this, I don't think, one way to read this is that John's languishing in a prison cell and he's just coming into a period of doubt. Even the great John the Baptist doubts his faith, right? And I've heard it taught that way. It's not, it's possible that's what's happening. But when I see a word like pempo, that reads a flag to me that like, okay, I want to just read it for what it says. If he's languishing, languishing in prison, he would be using these people as messengers, right? And he wouldn't be using them as pushing them out of the jail cell and getting rid of them. So... I'm not, I wouldn't question that maybe John's having doubts and maybe that's the case, but that's totally out of character from everything else we've seen from John the Baptist, where he is known with certainty who Jesus is, what he's doing, and what, the, and what his role is compared to Jesus. So another way, another clue here is that he sends his disciples, he doesn't send apostles. So notice the word there is disciple, people that are trying to follow him as a rabbi and he's sending them back to Jesus. So... And then another clue in verse 3, it says, um, and said, let me read this here, Are you, and, and they said to him in verse 3, so John sends off his disciples and the disciples say to him, so the implication in the Greek there is that they're saying this, not John saying this. Does that make sense? He's not sending them to speak on his behalf. He pushes them out and then they say this to Jesus. Are you the coming one or do we look for somebody else? And that's essentially the question for Jesus, right? Is he your Lord and Savior or is he not? So John's sending his disciples to ask the question, are you the coming one? It could be that they came running back to John. 
he's in prison and he, he it could be that he's languishing, languishing saying, I'm in a prison cell and I'm waiting for this military conqueror to come take over. So tell Jesus to get his move on because I'm in, I'm in prison right now. Come free me from the prison. That's possible. It's also possible, based on some of those clues, that he, the disciples come running back to complain about Jesus and his eating habits. And John just says, why don't you just go ask Jesus directly if he's the one? I mean, John and Jesus were cousins. They grew up together 30 years plus. And John's just like, I need you to go back to Jesus, Pempo, and just go talk to him and ask him if he's the one. Ask him straight up. And so he, they ask him straight up, and then I love that Jesus doesn't necessarily give a straight up answer until the end of the chapter. So they go and they, 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 they ask it. Um, John then consistently would be understanding who Jesus is. Um, but here's the problem with Jesus. John's out at the wilderness, living in sackcloth, eating locusts, fasting, praying, passionately seeking God with this force, right? That it's about the effort we put in to get to the kingdom of God. And, that, and I think Jesus, that's what Jesus is going to address here in a couple of verses. They're in small towns. That's where Jesus isn't going to Jerusalem. He's going to small towns. He's talking about losing his life. He's talking about being like sheep and doves. He's not yelling at people like John the Baptist was yelling and screaming, right? Big, bold, firebrand teacher out there. And then Jesus is going to dinner parties with tax collectors. This doesn't seem like the military conqueror that John the Baptist was expecting. So we have an issue here, and this is, I think, where this chapter becomes so relevant. Jesus is nothing like John, and it's reasonable to think that he's nothing like what John expected. So it's not that John doubts his messiahship, but he doubts the method and how he's doing it. So do we look for another is one word, prostakio, to expect something. Are we going to be expecting another? And it's in the present active indicative and a first person plural. So the disciples are pushed out by John. They go to him and it says, do we look? And that we being in the first person is not a we as in us and John. It's a we as in just those two disciples. Greek is really specific like that. So the present active indicative would mean that this is what they're saying in the spot. Do me and my buddy look for somebody else? Or are you the person? They're supposed to ask who they should be following because it's no longer John. And John's already said that back in chapter 3. So Jesus says, go and tell John in verse 4. Go and tell John. Which lends itself to another option, that John's having some doubts and that Jesus is sending them back to John to affirm those doubts. So we're back to that first option. He's already heard of the works of Jesus back in prison, but maybe you need to tell more about it. So what's in the word of God? And I like how this is what Jesus does. I want you to see what I'm doing, watch my works, and go tell John about them. So he's asking them to go back to Jesus and know for themselves what's happening. Jesus doesn't answer the question immediately. And I think this is one of those things. This is, I think... Frankly, good pastoral counseling is when pastors send you back to the Word of God. Here's what the Bible says. And you have to figure it out for yourself. It's not about going to a place where somebody else tells you how to live. It's about living in concert as a brother and sister, and we encourage each other by pointing each other to the Word of God. So maybe Jesus just loves John and he wants him to get the updates. Maybe John was in doubt. Maybe John's just trying to get rid of these two straggler disciples that won't move on, right? So... And perhaps John's doing it wrong and he's a little offended about the way that Jesus is doing things. On any of those senses, there's a miscommunication that's getting sorted out here. 
So John, Jesus knows that John knows the scriptures. Um, and it could be maybe a fourth option or fifth. I don't know. John might be just being humble because he doesn't see himself as the prophet. So when he says, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Maybe John thinks Jesus is the prophet to announce the Messiah. Because there is a prophet, Deuteronomy 8.15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of you, like, like your brother, like unto me, and unto him you shall listen. So there's multiple references that before the Messiah, there'll be a, a prophet that announces that Messiah. And maybe John's doubting if he's that prophet or not. Maybe it's just Jesus is that prophet and that he's going to point us to another. And that could be another way. Again, we can go through the different possibilities here. The Bible doesn't tell us which it is. We only get those clues. So here's the takeaway. Being in prison sucks. Like at the end of the day, being in this prison cell isolates him. It takes him out of the kingdom. And he's there because he opened his big mouth and said dumb things to the wrong people. And this is right after chapter 10 where Jesus says, be wise as snakes. If you're getting in trouble in a city, get out of that city. Don't put yourself in these positions. Don't just antagonize people. And, and, and that doesn't glorify the king. That just puts you in a spot where your political protest, even if you're right, because Herod was in the wrong spiritually, but that political protest of John was a little premature. And he's now expecting Jesus to bail him out. So John's proclamation landed him in jail and whether he's confused, whether he's getting rid of his disciples, whether he's, it doesn't matter, being in jail is a bad thing. So that was one takeaway. Um, then takeaway number two, here's the central question. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? So Matthew's just laid out his first section, chapters one through 10. And now comes the question, is he the one or not? And even passionate people, godly people like John's disciples, is Jesus the way to heaven or is there another? And is there another path? So verse 4, Jesus answered them. And so this is his answer. And said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Go tell him what you're reading in the word. And Jesus moving and shaking, that is the word of God. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That last line, blessed he who is not offended, really leans towards that, they're, Jesus isn't what they expected, so they're offended by it. They're offended by his not lack of fasting, and now the same people are offended by his uh, eating with tax collectors and everything else. Luke chapter 7, verse 21, adds in a phrase, at that very hour. So that gives us a little bit of insight on this. When Jesus answered them and says, go tell John the things which you see and hear at, that, at this very hour, means Jesus is doing miracles right in front of these disciples and he's saying like show him this hey you can see now and hey get up and walk and he's doing these miracles right in front of their face so in case you miss it like tell them what you're going to see and hear this very just tell them what you saw within the last hour and jesus sends him back when he quotes the blind see the lame walk um <laughs> he's quoting he's basically quoting isaiah 35 and I'll read that in a sec if you want to start flipping to it. Isaiah 35 is a little bit behind, a little after halfway through your Bible. Um, but he's already answered the question that he's the Messiah multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, his teaching and his actions tell a story as when we live our life, how we speak and what we do tell a story. Um, he's leaning on his ex existing record. He's not trying to prove things or argue with them. I just love how Jesus does this. 
Like he doesn't have to make a case to these two disciples. He just says, don't take my word for it. Trust your own eyes. Trust what you've seen. And I think that's the beautiful thing when we see God move in our life. We can trust our own witness. We don't have to trust anybody else's. I know that he did this in my life. I know he's doing these things. I don't need to prove that to anybody, right? And that's that self-referential witness is just a powerful thing. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's not convincing them with words. He's saying, trust your own eyes. What do you see and what are you hearing? Go tell John what you see in here. So Isaiah 3, chapter 35, this is what Jesus is referencing when he says this. He knows that John knows the Bible. Right? He knows that John knows God's word, so what he does is he points him back to God's word. And I just, this is so powerful. Isaiah 35, verse 3, Strengthen your hand, strengthen you the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them of a fearful heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense, and he will come and he'll save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame man leap up as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. That's exactly what's happening. <clears throat> the Jews are very familiar with messianic passages, especially in the first century, because if you look at other passages, this is chronologically when Messiah should appear. So that's why there's this like hubbub amongst the Jews looking for Messiah. It's why people came out to John the Baptist. They're ready for Messiah, and he's just pointing them back to the word, like, tell them what you see. Jesus adds in that the dead are raised, which is not in the Isaiah passage. So I like that Jesus just adds, oh, and by the way, we're resurrecting people here. So when he's talking about saving people there, he's actually saving people from death. So verse 5 retraces the teachings of chapter 5 through 7 and the miracles of 8 and 9. So we just had a whole thing where we as readers, John has let us see for ourselves what's happening. Don't trust his word for it. This is just the record of what happened. It's effective then when we get the same passages in John and other pieces. Now we have two or more witnesses. God didn't leave this to chance. He didn't even just do two witnesses. We got four Gospels that tell a lot of the same stories because he didn't want us to have to just trust one person. So it's, it's like Matthew is letting us see and us hear what happened so we can judge for ourselves. Like, here's the evidence, that's what it is. Verse 6 says, who is not offended. The word there is scandalizo. It's where we get the word scandal. Uh, it's the same root Greek word. I like that in the Greek. Sometimes you recognize the words. Blessed are those who aren't scandalized by Jesus. Blessed are those that don't stumble, is another way to translate that, or get tripped up by what God's doing. <laughs> this is, so in the evening study, we're in 1 Samuel and chapter 8 tonight. And literally, like, this is, they reference each other, where God's telling Samuel, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And Jesus is kind of saying the same thing here, like, they're offended by me, they're not offended by you. And in chapter 10, he said the same thing to his apostles that he sent out. Don't worry about it when they don't accept what you got. When people get upset with you and they don't like your Jesus, like, move on. It's not a big deal. And God tells us that because it is a thing that we have to worry about. I think we're, we're wired to make people happy. We like to make people happy. So when that doesn't happen, it, it's there. So chapter 10, there's going to be some offended people. And there's going to be some people that aren't offend, offended. It implies that the disciples, these disciples of John were offended. Part of his answer to them is, blessed are those that are not offended. It's like he adds a beatitude here at the end, in this chapter. 
but the disciples are going to be stomping off. It's not good enough for them. I think they wanted fireworks. They wanted power of God. They wanted parting Red Seas. And what they got was this carpenter that just tells people to stand up and they stand up. Nothing flashy about what Jesus did. And they're disappointed in that. They wanted Alexander the Great, right? That's what's happening between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Alexander the Great conquers. They're looking for Alexander the Great. They're looking for this mighty conqueror to be the Jewish empire will rise and overtake the Roman Empire. That's what they were training for in little zealot camps. Like they wanted that to happen. And then they got Jesus. And you put yourself in the perspective, think how disappointing that was. But it's only disappointing if what you want is vengeance. If what you want is a sweet relationship with God, there it is waiting for you. So Jesus calmly just says, don't take my words for it. Look at what you're seeing and hearing. It fits Isaiah. Um, I heard one commentary. It was just wonderful. He went in and looked at modern prophecy. And he's like, if you don't think we're in the end times right now, just look at what's happening. Look around you. And that's kind of what Jesus did here. And people are like, well, I don't want to get too weird about the end times and prophecy. It's like, no, no, no. Is, there, is, is Israel a nation again? Yep, 1948. Did it happen in one day? Yep, exactly as the Bible said it would. Have they been attacked on all sides? Yep. And then the, the result was they took land in a defensive war? Yep, it's all predicted in the Bible. And Jesus is doing that here with his coming. And he's like, look, it's all been predicted. And everything you're seeing right now is happening. So it's just not happening as flashy as you thought it should be. So that's offensive to some people, right? It's, you know, it's, we, we have a fairly small Bible study. And so when people want church or they think about church, they think of what church should be. But what they should be doing is checking is, are you getting closer to the Lord God Almighty and is the Holy Spirit moving in your life? So the work of Jesus is deliberate, but it's subtle and it's quiet and it moves the soul, and it's beautiful if you look at what Jesus is doing, but not necessarily armies marching. So blessed are the unoffended, they will be happy. <laughs> and Jesus, and Luke asserts a bit here too. Luke in chapter 7 says, when all the people heard Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So Matthew doesn't include this because he's, Matthew has much more of a Jewish focus and that little addition about what's happening with the Gentiles. All these Gentiles are getting saved and baptized through John and Jesus, but then some of John's followers just can't accept what Jesus is doing. And so there's this translation. So it says they departed, verse 7, as they departed, the word there is in Greek is transfer or carry over. We think of departed as leaving and now they're not in the picture. But the, the Greek there where it says as they departed is it's almost like Jesus is yelling after them. Like he can still hear this next part. So Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. So his voice goes up so they can still hear him. But they're walking away as it happens. They're transferring out of the picture. Um, and Jesus' address goes to the larger population. Um, but it's almost like he's shouting this after them. He began to say to the multitudes concerning John, John the Baptist, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Like, what was your expectation with John the Baptist? When, when you went out to that wilderness, what did you think you were going to see? Remember your expectations? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? Verse 8, 
But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah. I say to you, and more than a prophet, you didn't just go to hear a prophet. You went because there's something going on with John the Baptist. There's something important here. But he wasn't what they expected. They didn't expect John the Baptist to be who he was. So, but he's a lot more. They realized that their own hearts changed when they went out to see John the Baptist. They didn't just go to a show. There's something that happened in their hearts. So I love this passage. The, the king's houses thing is a contrast to where John's at right now. He's in the prison underneath the house. But the soft garment people are upstairs in the nice rooms. So there's this idea that, that the word houses there is like a palace. Um, so John wasn't what you expected. And Jesus questions their motives. What are you looking for is a motive. What are you hoping to get out of this? What drew you in? And they appreciated the truth in John in boldness, but it was an earthy kind of firebrand preacher style. They should also appreciate the truth that Jesus offers them. And then he follows with this, verse 10. For this is he of whom it's written. Again, he sends them to the word of God. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for you. You know I like when they say before your face. In the Hebrew, that's penium, but it means like right up in your grill, in your bubble right? It's, you can't avoid what God's showing you. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, talking about Messiah. Assuredly, I say to you, among those who are born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, and he's in a prison cell right now. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Whoa, what's that? And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he's Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus drops this bomb on not only those disciples walking away, but on the whole multitudes. And this is a bomb that gets misread, misquoted all the time. It's a really tough verse. It's why we do chapter-by-chapter chapter study is out of context, these are tough verses. Like, what was the suffering of violence and all that? So if God's isn't what you expect or presume, does that mean it's not God? Or does it mean that you're not God? And I think he's just throwing this on their plate, right? Is God what you think he should look like? Or is God what God thinks he should look like? So Jesus shifts the audience to the larger group. This is now going to be a learning opportunity for everybody. He confirms that John was the prophet. What does that mean about Jesus? He's answering their question that initial question, because if John was the prophet, that means that Jesus is the Messiah because he clearly pointed at Jesus. So he's answering the question. He's just doing it in a roundabout way. Verse 7 gives a false expectation. Verse 8 gives another false expectation. And then in verse 9, he gives the right answer. This is standard uh, ancient teaching in, that comes in threes, two wrong and then a right. But two wrongs don't make a right. John was shaken, but he wasn't broken. So he, he wasn't dressed up fancy. He was a prophet of God. He, didn't, he wasn't what you expected, but he was a prophet of God. Make no doubt about it. In fact, there's no one in the Old Testament that's greater than John the Baptist. That's a huge statement. Think of who that John just, Jesus just compared John to. Compared him to Moses, Abraham, Samuel, who were studying in the evenings, Micah, Hosea, Jonah. Jonah, a whole town got saved. 
That's pretty big deal. And so John the Baptist, is he talking about this guy in prison that, that dressed in sackcloth is the greatest of the prophets? But he's not what you expected. And you wouldn't expect the greatest of the prophets to look like that. So sometimes what people want isn't a finely dressed prophet. Sometimes what people want is just the truth. And the more chaotic the world gets, the more refreshing the truth is. And I was just thinking of this because, I don't know, I give myself five minutes a day to look at the news and you're just like, I just want the truth. And you can't trust either of the news services, right? Everybody's just pumping an agenda and it's like, can somebody just tell me the truth about what's going on? Can somebody just give me a conclusive study on vaccines and if they work or not? Like, where do I get truth in this world? And sometimes that's all you want, and it doesn't matter what John looked like. It matters what he said and if he's speaking for God or not. So if John wasn't what you expected, maybe Jesus isn't what we expected either. And that's a danger of putting our expectations of God on God's work. And the simple application is, Maybe church doesn't look like what you think it should look like. Maybe it looks like what God is designing and doing. So a prophet, verse 9, yes, I say to you, more than a prophet, uh, even the prophet, right? Matthew's writing for a Jewish audience. They understand the distinction between a prophet and the prophet. Verse 10 gives the word to frame John as the prophet who announces the Messiah. And I want to go through a couple Old Testament passages just so you can get a feel for what the Jewish people were reading about Messiah and what they thought about him. Isaiah 40, verse 3, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, in reference to the refuge cities, that there would be a spiritual road preparer. And that was John, a road runner. Um, Malachi 3, 1, right at the end of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. That's what Jesus is saying just happened. Like this is what you're seeing. Malachi Malachi prophesies this right before the Lord goes silent for 400 years. And all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, John the Baptist. And the Lord starts moving on the earth again. Actually, I think during that 400 years, what he was doing was preparing a road system with the Romans and preparing a language group with the Greeks. Because you see the Greeks get amazingly blessed right after Malachi. And God starts moving amongst some of these Gentile people. And But that's a theory. The Bible doesn't say that. That's just me being a history geek. Um, but what he did is he, he got the language ready for the New Testament. He got the road system and the, and the law of, of, of control of law through the Roman Empire which made an excellent way to spread the gospel to three continents within a decade of Jesus' resurrection. Just everything's planned out. And then you get to this. I'll reread verse 12. This is the tricky one, right? Um, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, that's actually a short period of time. Like at most, that's two years from when John started teaching to where we're at right now. We don't know how long Jesus was teaching in North of Galilee. So, but it was somewhere around two years. So um, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That's a heavily debated phrase. What is going on and how does that, what does that mean and what does that look like? Um, Luke 10, 24, I tell you many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. 
and they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. So when Jesus is saying, tell John what you see and hear, there's a lot of people that wanted to be there. Like, wouldn't you want to be there seeing Jesus do his miracles? Like, we're born 2,000 years later, but wouldn't it have been cool to see all this? So this blessing is there. So literally speaking, John stirred up multitudes about a coming political kingdom. What John talked about was a kingdom of force. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, John 6, 15, he slipped away behind the hills by himself. Jesus avoided this group of people that wanted to force him to be their king. So that same word force is getting used in John that's being used here. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. So are we supposed to violently take the kingdom? Is the kingdom being assaulted or are we assaulting other people? There are those ready to do violence for the kingdom at its inception. A lot of John's followers. They were ready to fight. And that was the kingdom they were looking for. Immediately, John's message is God's, God's message that he has been taken by force. So in, one way to look at this is John's in a prison cell because he attempted force. And that this kingdom was there. The in the Greek, the word there for violence, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, is biazo. So memorize that word, biazo, because it gets used actually there twice. To use force or to apply force to get into something. Biazo as a word is not the word for violence. The Greeks have two different words. Biazo is when you're trying to force a box open. You know, like you can't open a, a, a something in the kitchen, so you, you bring your bottle of whatever to somebody and say, can you open this for me? That's Biazzo. There's no enemy with Biazzo. It's just you and the thing you're trying to open up. So the word there is extremely particular. Biazzo is like opening a jammed door or a, a bottle of jam. The kingdom of heaven is Biazzo is the Greek. It, it's, it's forced. It's hard. And the biats, Biatazo take it by Harpazo. So the kingdom of heaven is hard to open and the hard to open people are trying to take it and then they use the word harpazo which is to seize something or haul off loot. It's to steal something. You're trying to take it. It's a strained kind of thing. So the fasting that they're talking about, why doesn't Jesus fast with his disciples? They're thinking that the kingdom of God is something you open up through great stress and works. This is like extreme, like, aesthetic religions, right? This is like, frankly, Islam. That To get to the kingdom of heaven, you got to work at it. And it's about working as hard as you can to get rid of sin in your life. The reality is you work as hard as you want, you're never going to get rid of it. You're always tainted by it, unless you're cleansed. And then the take it by force in the Greek is a personal pronoun. So I'm like, this doesn't read anything like the Greek when you actually break it down. So Another way to translate what I think is a lot more accurate for us in the English is the kingdom of heaven is forced and forceful seize it themselves seizing it. Like it's a play on words. It's almost poetry, what he's saying there. And, it got, and, it, and when you say it the way it's in my Bible, at least, maybe your Bibles have it translated that way. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. The two violence they use are two different words. One's biazo, one's harpazo. So the forced and forceful seize themselves by seizing it. The personal pronoun implies all you do when you try to wane the kingdom of force is you put yourself in a trap. All you do is when you're trying to push your way into the heaven is you create your own seizing. You only seize yourself. You only put yourself in chains when you do it. And that's a, for me at least, when I was reading that in the Greek, that's a totally different meaning than what I got out of verse 12 in the English. 
So talking to John's disciples who are not happy with Jesus or getting sent away or depart from him when he gives his answer, well, what do you see? What do you hear? And they're all mad about it, and they depart from Jesus. And then he seeks out to the crowd, and he says this. He's like, look, the kingdom of heaven between John the Baptist and now has been something you guys are trying to do it by force. And all you do is put your, you just seize yourself when you do that. And it's a mess. Figuratively, John had to use great force to do what John did, and it's part of why people respected him and listened to him. But the greatest effort that anyone can make to get the kingdom of God is still falling short. So then you get to that idea of effort for the kingdom of God and that some people want it to be stressful. They want it to be strenuous. And then verse 13 comes, in all of human history up until now, John's made the best effort at entering the kingdom of God of any of the prophets. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Out of any of the prophets, John's done the best. He's gotten the closest of anybody. Look at the guy. He eats locusts, right? It, he's biazoed more than anybody can biazo, and it's still not enough. And so we see, until now, it still doesn't do it. For I say to you, Matthew 5.20, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And John's done the best at exceeding that righteousness. He, his job was to introduce the kingdom, but he had no keys to open it up. He could only point at the door. And that, where John, that's a wonderful task. He's the best of all the prophets because he's pointing where God tells him to point. But now John's disciples are asking about things like fasting and trying to confirm the way that Jesus is doing it, not the person of Jesus and who he is. So this effort for goodness becomes the en enemy of godliness. They can't just relax and take Jesus' yoke. Oh, we'll get to that at the end of the chapter. They can't just understand that this isn't about straining into the kingdom of heaven. It's not holding your breath and pushing, right? It's relaxing and falling into the arms of Jesus and being and, and allowing yourself to be welcomed. It's love. It's not, a, it's not opening a box. It's a revelation. It's not something that you solve. So stop trying to solve it, right? So it says, for all the prophets and the law. So... <laughs> All the prophets in the law say Messiah is coming. And then John says Messiah is here. That makes him a lot better than everybody who had to say he was coming. He gets to say they're here. And it says, if you're willing, in verse 14, he is Elijah. So receiving the kingdom, like, if this is to help them, um, notice the word if is in, in verse 14. If you get it, if you get what I'm saying, he's the Elijah too. So he's making a reference because in the first century, Elijah the prophet um, was promised in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. They're waiting for the great and dreadful day, and Jesus is going to do that here later. But this coming, he's not doing that. Elijah took on ball worship. He focused the worldly religions. He took them on. He was head-on confrontational with the Baal priests. He got discouraged. He stood all by himself. So a lot of similarities to John the Baptist in his style and in his message. Notice that Jesus says, Elijah, who is to come. There is going to be an actual Elijah that shows up in Matthew 17, verse 3. God often gives people different names. Uh, Simon and Peter, Paul and Saul. Like, God does that all the time. So it could be that Elijah, who was caught up in, in heaven actually was brought back and, and just like Jesus incarnated himself, 
It could be that he incarnated John. Again, Jesus says if, which means we don't have, it's not core belief for us to think John the Baptist is Elijah, but it sure sounds like Jesus is saying, Elijah was promised in prophecy and you got John. And that's, you should be matching those up. They come back to this issue in Matthew 17. We'll cover it more when we get there. Uh, but in Matthew 17, it says the disciples asked him, so his own disciples are saying, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must come, must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus replied, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready, future tense. But I tell you, Elijah's already come, past tense. But he wasn't recognized and they chose to abuse him. They actually took his head off, John the Baptist. And in the same way, they will also make the Son of Man suffer. And then the disciples realized he was talking about John the Baptist. So we get this answer really straight up later on. Jesus makes the case that the spirit of Elijah was in the John the Baptist. Unless you want to, yeah, I mean, there's theological dances that get done around that. I'm just okay to believe what Jesus said, um, even if I don't understand it. And he says, if you're willing to, and so it's not a requirement that we all agree on that. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the first use of that phrase. Jesus is going to start using this after he makes a big point. Those with ears to hear, let them hear. And it'll be kind of a, a marker of Jesus' teachings that we see for the first time here. Uh, so in verse 4, tell John what you see in here. Um, in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And talking to everybody around him. And in verse 27, Jesus is only going to reveal to some what he's doing. We're making Jeremiah 5.21 true. Hear this in all foolish people without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. But you'll have some people that hear it and get it, and some people that don't. And that's the, the toughest thing for Christians to get, is we think we're going to force people into the kingdom of God. But that makes the kingdom suffer violence. We can't force people into the kingdom. Some people see it, some people don't. What we can do is pray. And Jesus coaches his disciples to pray because I don't know why, but God wants us to pray for people around us that they'll understand and start to see and hear. And then the Holy Spirit goes and works on their heart. And we wait for that to happen. So our force is not what unlocks the door for people, but God does. He just has the key. He just clicks it and opens it. And then all of a sudden people give us a call and say, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And that, when that happens, you start to realize how little we need to do to convince people to come into the kingdom. Either they're ready to go or they're not. So that's John. What about the audience? And verse 16, he kind of talks, now he broadens it out to the whole audience. Verse 16. But what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you and you didn't lament. For John came neither eating and drinking and they say he has a demon. And John, the son of man, came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a winebiber, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by our children. Jesus doesn't need to argue his point. The kingdom of God's right here, and this generation doesn't get it. They're rejecting it. And that's the heartbreaking part. The like children sitting in the marketplace, uh, in, in, in ancient Palestine, the marketplace is kind of the town center, so you'd have kids. They didn't really tend to their kids very closely. <laughs> like the, the assumption is the kids would eventually find their way home because they want food. But the children sitting in the marketplace calling to each other, if you've ever watched kids play, 
there's a real revelation to see here. If you look at like an elementary schoolyard, kids will break up into little groups and then they'll yell to the other groups to come join their group because kids are all off doing their own things. They all know what they want to do in their head and they have to convince other kids to do it with them. So it's kind of basic kid sociology that people would have seen in the marketplace all the time. These kids yelling to each other, hey, come over here and do this with me. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. The children are fickle and their interests are shifting all the time, and so are we. So the idea here is it's never good enough for you. We played the flute for you. Flute would be happy music. And you didn't dance to our happy music. And then we mourned and you didn't lament with us. So the idea here is it's never good enough for some people. They're always discontent, right? John came doing it one way, and you guys didn't like John. I came doing it the exact opposite, and you didn't like me. We both serve the same God. And you're trying to control how people serve God, and that's an act of force and violence against people. Stop it. So we can come to you with happy music, but you're not going to dance because you're doing it your own way. You're like a kid. You just got your own interests in mind all the time. And it's painful for Jesus to see this because these are people trying to be self-righteous instead of just being righteous. And, and Jesus acts this out. So John was this hardcore, separated, consecrated guy, and Jesus is this hardcore, connecting, friendship kind of guy. And it's just this frustrating thing for Jesus. You're never happy. And he's talking specifically to his audience here. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, that was an insult at the time. Today we say friend of sinners, and we celebrate that phrase. It's like when they used to say Jesus freaks, and now that's like, yeah, I'm a Jesus freak. It's amazing how in Christ we can sanctify these insults. You know, They used to put fish out there so they could make a symbol to other Christians where to find Christians because they were getting killed by Romans. And now we put fish on the back of our cars, right? So... Um, these things that people criticize with often become the mark for believers because we're just not worried about offending people. If you're offended, that's your problem. We don't actively try to go out and antagonize people either. But if people are offended by the name of Jesus, that's kind of on them. So the criticism often attacks the person, but Jesus directs us to what's getting done. And I just love how he handles this. Wisdom is justified by her children. So... To, to leave to, for a contemporary perspective on this, um, I like the idea of, like, for me, who was it that said, which pastor was it that said, I'm the perfect Christian? Don McClure. Don McClure. It's just great they use. All I know is this I'm the perfect Christian. The people that are, getting, that are too legalistic, like, they're way too into Jesus. Those people are legalists, and they're just, they got it all wrong. And then you got these per people that are permissive and they allow sin into their life, and they compromise, and those people are just compromised. I'm the only one that has the perfect balance between those two things. And tongue-in-cheek, of course, the point is Christians can be the worst. You know, Those people with the flute, they're, they're too Pentecostal. And those people with the dirge, they're too Baptist. And we just there's always this thing where we think everybody else is doing it wrong, and we're doing it right. What if we just worried about ourselves? I was, at the time I'm watching this movie called The Jesus Music, which is the history of Christian music in a documentary style film. It's awesome, but there were some quotes in there because I'm kind of have that going and I'm doing my Bible study at the same time. But the early musicians in the 60s that started making the music we all sing now in churches, they were hated by the church. The church actively would protest and bring picket signs to their concerts. 
In fact, they couldn't even do their music in churches. The church didn't allow them for 30 years. There's still some churches that won't allow Christian contemporary. Well, that's the other thing. They didn't like the term Christian contemporary music. They liked the term Jesus music because Jesus is what it's all about. Um, but the churches would go on campaigns like uh, the, the, the first church leader that accepted any kind of use of guitar and drums and music was Billy Graham. And he was just this little guy that would do rallies. They had to do rallies outside of the church because the church wouldn't let them do it. And they became the crusades that thousands of people have been saved because of those crusades because they let God do something new. And that new movement in, the, in America started to make magazines and it became this multi-billion dollar industry. But nobody let them crusade with the only preacher in the country was Billy Graham. And then he became Billy Graham, not because of Billy Graham, but because God was doing a new thing and Billy Graham was willing to let that happen. And people didn't get it. At one of the first rallies they had, Johnny Cash was singing next to Love Song, right? They were just like, this is like, well, you can't do that. Imagine John's disciples are like, you're not doing it right. You can't have beats with your music. And the musicians, of course, laugh about it, but it was really hurtful to them because they knew what was going on. And it's always been that way in the church. It's the church that's the worst enemy of God. The Benedictines had to go off and create their own monasteries because the Catholic Church wouldn't let them. Jesuits had to go off and create their own universities because the church wouldn't do it within that system. The Lutherans had to just break off from the Catholics altogether because God was doing a thing and they were going to follow God and not man. The Baptists, the same thing. All the Protestant groups, same thing. The Puritans actually had to leave the country, go across an ocean so they could make a space where they could just worship their God freely and they could you know, sing songs together the way they wanted to do it. In America, the church didn't allow in the big brass bands in the 1920s. They had to set up tents outside of town to do God the way they were inspired to do God. And then there was a big tent revival movement in this country. But it wasn't in the church. None of the major revivals in history have been inside the structured church system ever. And that's a sobering thing for me as a, as a teacher of God's word. I never want to stop the movement of the Holy Spirit. I also don't want to do ridiculous things that aren't of the God. I don't want to get in front of him, but I don't want to get behind him either. And that's such a tough place to be. The only way you can do it is that you submit to the Lord God Almighty and you do what he tells you to do. This is such a thing. In that movie, a quote from Kirk Franklin, who does hip-hop and gospel. He had this huge hit called Stomp that made the secular charts. And it's godly music. I mean, you listen to the lyrics, it's, it's about God. And this is what he said. The Christians hated this song, by the way. Even the Christian music community that was getting established wouldn't let the hip-hop artist be part of their pantheon of heroes. And Kirk Franklin said this, and just stood out as I was studying this, if they don't have nail prints in their hand or scars on their forehead, you owe them no explanation. I just loved it. That's what got him through doing what God was calling him to do, even though he was getting rejected everywhere he went by the same people that were his brothers and sisters. Because we're so judgmental. And that's, I think when you got John's disciples doing this to Jesus, that had to hurt a little bit. But at the end of the day, Jesus is like, I serve God. Blessed are those who aren't offended by that. Blessed are the, the flexible, they don't get broken. And they don't snap when these things happen. If my life is a testimony to God, I never want to go to God like these disciples came to Jesus, ever. 
Wisdom is justified by our children. When you're doing what God calls you to do, there's fruit in it. And for the examples I gave, we're talking about thousands, if not millions of people are the fruit of God's movement amongst his people. They're not the fruit of a legalized, calcified church system. They never have been. And they weren't from the day Jesus was walking the earth teaching it. He, he had the same people critique what he was doing that we have today, critiquing the next movement of the Holy Spirit. The trick is getting on board and knowing that you're following the Lord when you do it. So we hear it, we join the congregation, we help out, we minister and bless. That's the equation. It's really simple. We just come saying, how can we help? What can we do? And if we're still broken, we just come saying, teach me the word of God. I just want to hear what God has to say. That's it. And beyond that becomes taking the kingdom by force. And it's such a difficult thing to work through. So it's thinking that God's plan isn't good enough and we got to do something to add to it. So we all have the chance. We can leave ourselves behind. And it's simple and perfect and beautiful. And in the end, we don't have to justify that to any critic or anyone else. Nor does Jesus have to justify himself to these two disciples. And he doesn't. He doesn't explain himself or anything. He just says, wisdom is justified by our children. Look at the fruit. So John tells the things which, to tell John the things which you see and hear. That's the only thing he's asked him to do, and they can't handle it. So then he gives some woes. Like, again, Jesus is not like trying to recruit people here. <laughs> this is not what he he's cares more about the truth than he does about recruiting. Verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades or hell, uh, is um, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been re it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. These are not light teachings, right? We you know Jesus is hitting them right with the truth. He rebukes, and his rebuke is how he deals with these disciples in this attitude of expectation. Uh, and he proclaims the truth to people that haven't repented yet. So if you can hear and see Jesus, what more do you need? Uh, Matthew, uh, uh, I'll get an email saying, is this like, what do you guys do for church? And we're like, we study the word, we fellowship, we eat, we pray. That should be what it takes to know, yep, you're a Bible-based church. It's really simple. Um, and, but people, I think we add so much to that. In this particular passage, verses 20 through 24, notice that it says it will be more tolerable. That implies there's different kinds of judgment for different groups of people, right? That's a tough thing to absorb. Like, if, But I got to just, okay, if that's what the Bible says, there's no record here of any attacks in these towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum is Jesus' hometown. But there's no record of attack. In fact, his teachings around Capernaum, he's had multitudes of people listening to what he says. These are good farm towns. This is like Owatonna and Medelia and uh, Marshall, Minnesota. These are good towns. Most people are good Jewish people going to synagogue every week, you know, having uh, bingo nights 
and fish fries, and that's these kind of towns, right? These are small towns. Maybe 1,000 people, 1,200 people, and he's cursing them. Woe to you. And he's judging groups of people or cities. So yes, there's individual accountability, but he seems to be looking at things by the city here too. So he, there's a balance of both. So at this point in time, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are archaeological digs. What he said here, that they would be no more, they are no more. Capernaum's like a grassy field. There's two churches that own this little area. Capernaum would have been maybe 1,000 people in a space about as big as a football field. And about half of it's dug up, Eastern Orthodox, or there's two different churches that own the land, but there's no town there anymore. There's just a couple churches. They're gone. So one thing here is there's an implication that Jesus has been out to these towns and he's doing these works, and we don't get all of that narrative in the book of Matthew. John 21, 25 says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, but if they were written in one by one, I suppose even the world itself couldn't contain the books that it would be written in. Jesus was doing this stuff every day. Every town he went into, every place he went. So even that, like, tell him what you see and hear this very hour from the book of Luke. Like he's hour by hour, day by day, healing people, fixing people, making things right, everywhere he goes. This was not a private ministry. It was extremely public. So... If John's disciples don't get that, and then this generation from verse 16, Jesus is still responding to the expectations when he's cursing these towns. Um, the work of Jesus being abundant in these towns, he's responded to the individuals, now he's responding to the towns. Here's the deal that you get with this accountability thing. The more we know and the closer we get to Jesus' works, the more we see it happening, the more accountable we are. So sorry for the bad news. But if you've heard the gospel of Jesus, you're accountable to what you've heard. So when Jesus says, tell them what you see and hear, they're accountable for what they've seen and heard. And woe to people like these towns that have seen and heard it and they don't do anything. Here's the other thing. Nobody got stoned in Capernaum. Nobody got yelled at, really. I mean, there's just some people questioning about who he feasts with. So again, we're not talking about complete rejection. In Jerusalem, Jesus is crucified. But it's Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida right now that get these curses. So, at least for me, it is one of those things where it's not outright rejection that God hates. It's indifference. It's passive. I'm just going to hear it and not do anything with it. And imagine what Jesus. Imagine if Jesus walked through the door right now and came to our Bible study. Sean, let me take over. <laughs> You're screwing everything up, right? Let me just come and sit down with you guys. And then he's like, okay, Lisa, let's take care of that back problem you had. And you know, Sean, let me fix your toe. And I'm just going to, let's get all you guys good healthy-wise so you can focus on the word of God. And then let me tell you some things. And then he walked out the door and we'd all be looking at each other going, now what do we do? Right? And we're just like, ah, we'll go back to work on Monday. You know, and it's the indifference of these towns that I think Jesus is like, woe to you. So when he compares them to Tyre and Sidon, that's like comparing them to New York and Las Vegas. I mean, he's talking about bigger cities, that were worldly successful cities. And we know from, from, you know, at this point in time, he's comparing the small towns to the big cities. And the big cities are where all the sin happens, right? And that's how small towns see it. Well, that's where all those nasty people are that are protesting and yelling at each other, and, right? And he's like, no, it's going to be worse for you than them because you know what I'm teaching. You've seen it and you've heard it. They haven't. They're forgiven. Nineveh, God forgives the whole darn city out of their ignorance he just blesses the fact that they turn and repent. 
And, and you think of the Philistines mishandling the ark. He doesn't fry them. He fries the Israelites because they were told how to handle the ark. We've been told how to handle our lives and how to handle the church. And we're responsible for what we've been told. So we're more accountable than anybody in Jesus' audience right now because we know the rest of the story. Then you get to Revelations 3.16. But since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's not a seeker-friendly teaching. Once you hear the gospel, that indecision is something you're also held accountable for in sin. So now Jesus gives the answer to what they asked at the beginning. So they said, are you the coming one? Verse 5, at that time, Jesus answered and said. So I'm guessing they're far out of earshot at this point in the narrative, right? At that time, Jesus, if they would have just stuck around, they would have heard the answer to their question directly. But Jesus is Jesus. Like, he didn't give it directly. He gives it in progressive revelation. And here he just comes out and says it. Again, another huge teaching. I told you it was overload today. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Wow, there's so much here. So verse 27 is the bomb of an answer. Boom, right? All things are to be delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does the Father know the Son. I am Father and Son. The word know there, um, I will break that down later. So uh, Jesus answered as though he's answering that question. Note that he starts out with, I thank you. In the Greek, that's not really a gratitude. It's more of a confession. At least that's what my Greek translator says. It's an acknowledgement or an assent to God's plan. So when it says, I thank you, Father, it's I agree with you, Father, might be a good way to do that. Um, or uh, um, I accept or I'm going to speak what you say, Father. So Jesus looks at all of this from a heavenly perspective. Sidon is better than Capernaum from a heavenly perspective. From a worldly perspective, it's not even. Sidon's clearly the bigger town and, and more successful. You've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. Just like the towns, humans are the same way. There's nothing wrong with being wise and there's nothing wrong with being prudent. Uh, in fact, he commands in chapter 10, he tells his disciples to be wise. So this isn't like an argument against wise people. And it's definitely not a, something wrong with prudence because he tells his disciples in chapter 10 to flee from persecution. Like, be prudent. Use your head. So it's, it's not that he's saying it's bad to be someone who knows things. Um, and I think that's important to understand in context of chapter 10. But that self-confidence can be a, a danger for us from knowing God. To be thinking that we're so wise in our own eyes makes it so we can never be humble with God. If we think we're so smart about how to do things, we're never going to get there with God. And isn't this exactly what John's disciples were doing? They're coming in thinking they know how the kingdom should work. And because of that, they just can't see the kingdom at work. And it puts a roadblock up to them. So he's revealed them to babes, literally talking about children or infants. Um, some get it, some don't. Kid, the distinction between wise people and kids is kids are ready to learn. And to be a lifetime learner, like always ready to learn, I think is a Christian attribute. We're supposed to be like children that when we approach the things of God, we're always got our ears open. I got my ears open while I'm teaching. Like, God, what do you want to say to my heart? 
And I come to this with the deepest sense of humility. Like, I just don't want to screw it up is kind of my attitude coming into teaching every Sunday. I just don't want to get what God has to say wrong. But there's this attitude of, like, kids get that, and they just see it, and they understand it. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.18, Instead, God chose the things of the world, considers foolish, in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. It's the people that think they're all that that always miss the kingdom because they're putting, their godhood is a human. And that think of how small their god is. If they think they're that special, they're worshiping such a tiny little thing in the grand perspective of it all. And then in verse 26, Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. It's good. This is a good thing that God does because it's true. It's true that God's bigger than us. So it's true that we approach God with a humility because that's the truth of the matter. So anyways, verse 27, this is the answer. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and thus the one and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the coming one. That's the answer to the question. Oh, even more, only he knows the God. There's no other way to get to God but by Jesus Christ. That's a very exclusive, intolerant perspective on theology. There are not multiple ways to God. There is one way to God. So that's incredibly intolerant of other paths to God. No one knows Jesus but God, and nobody knows God but Jesus. The word, either that warms your heart like, and makes you really happy, oh, good. Or it's totally offensive. Jesus and God have no secrets. The word know that's being used there is the same word that gets used for husbands and wives when they get to know each other after the marriage. There's a total intimacy between Jesus and God. No secrets, no revelation, or no, no uh, um, misinformation, no miscommunication. It's a full and complete oneness of, of relationship. And he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about the fact that they're the same being. They're absolutely in, in, in tune with each other. So God, God's clearly a relational being, and he entrusts things in the Greek. So to the Jews, this is a pretty bold pronouncement. In fact, this is, would be considered a heretical announcement to the Jewish people. This is worthy of killing Jesus if you don't think he's God. Um, so to, for him to put himself in this position, it means he's closer to God than Moses, Samuel, and Abraham. This is exactly what the Pharisees come after him about. This is the line. Nor does anyone know the Father except for the Son is self-referential language. He's speaking about himself in the third person. But it's a completely exclusive thing. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Um, so as Messiah, unique as king, we know God via the law and we know God via Jesus. So the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus is bringing those together right here. Um, so he's being self-referential. One thing is he's being self-referential as the son, but he's also being self-referential as the father. So I think that might be why he phrased it this way. He didn't want any misunderstanding that there's like two beings. So when he does the self-referential with the son and then he does it with the father, that makes it so there's no confusion there. So the way he's wording it is how you would word it if you want to have something written down for 2,000 years that people understand. So the language there um, where it says the one is added as a standard 
standard Greek translation in, in context, there's actually no Greek word there. It should read, and whosoever the Son will reveal. So the, the, when, if you see one in your translation, it's not actually in the Greek. Um, but it's a common way to, to translate that particular Greek. The person then that's revealed to us is being what's made here. There's two ways to read that. Either God reveals himself to certain people, and he's talking about the one being you and me, or God's actually making a reference there to the Holy Spirit. So I would argue the second, but we can talk about it when we're done if we want to. Um, so there's no two there. Uh, that's another word. It should just be, and whosoever the Son will reveal is the literal translation. There's no article in the Greek. Um, to whoever would be directional in the, in the phrasing. Am I, does that make sense? I'm confusing myself, I think, on this. The word reveal is apocalypto. Like our word for apocalypse comes from that Greek word. Uh, it means to lay something over, to uncover or disclose, a lot like we use the word reveal, so that, that's why we use it. But who has yet to be revealed would be another way to read this. So I know the Father, the Father knows me, the only people that know the Father and the Son are the Father and the Son, and the one that will be un revealed to you soon is another way to read this sentence. So the only being that knows the God and the, the God the Father and God the Son is God the Holy Spirit. So he's actually making a reference to the Trinity here as a full explanation to people who don't quite understand the Trinity yet. So it's not something that would be confusing to his listeners, and it's something we can read 2,000 years later, and it makes total sense. So God's yet to reveal the Holy Spirit to his church. That comes in Acts. Uh, and, and the Holy Spirit's shown up a few times in the Old Testament. But the idea is nobody knows the God but the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it's the same God. The Trinity nature then is in perfect communion with each other. Later on, Jesus says in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So later in the book of Matthew, it's not as concealed. It becomes revealed later on in Matthew. But at this point, um, when Jesus is talking about it, he's really talking about the Father, Son, and that thing I'm going to talk about later, which is the Holy Spirit. But Jesus knows there's a Holy Spirit there. Yahweh is one in nature between these different manifestations that we as humans see, but it's still the same God or the same being. It's like when you see me face-to-face -face versus when you see me on a Skype call or a Zoom call. Right? It's still me, but it's two different manifestations and two different means. If he's bugging you, just push him away. Podcasters, I'm talking about a dog right now, not my son. Verse 28, come to me. Uh, this, this is great. This is the verse we put on our walls. This is the stuff that happens at the end, but it comes after all this super heavy stuff, and it's like God just is like, okay, lighten up. Right? Let me just let you go from all that stuff, that deep, thick theology. And then I just, Jesus is such a good teacher. But come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden's light. This is in direct response to these two disciples that come with all their expectations of what. Jesus should be. And Jesus' response at the end of the day is relax. Like that's the one word answer. Like chill out, you people. And 
but I don't know, I hear this and like the inspirational music kicks in. This is light meets the dark kind of stuff. This is God is with us, Emmanuel. And you just feel that when you hit verse 28, it feels like the whole chapter just shifts gears. But you know what, you guys? It doesn't have to be woe to you, woe to Chorazin. It doesn't have to be the kingdom of God being taken by force. It can just be easy. It can be really simple, but you've got to let go of your expectations. Jeremiah 5.5, 5, I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they've known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God, but these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. So this reference to a yoke is in the Old Testament, and we have a three-step process here. Step one is come, simple action. There's no process to it. Just come to me, verse 28, and then there's going to be learn, step two, and then there's going to be finding rest, step three. So this is how easy it is. It's easy as one, two, three. Easy as ABC. Anybody can know God. And anybody who says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Like again, the Pharisees, this would have made them go ballistic. Because he's saying, come to me. He's not saying, go to Yahweh. He's saying he is Yahweh. And I'm the only one that understands Yahweh because I am Yahweh. Come to me. It's self-referential. What if God didn't offer rest? Like, think about that too. What if we got to meet God like he came to earth and he was a jerk? What if he was like Saturn or Thor? Like, what if he came as a, like all the pagan gods, there's some gods with nasty personalities. What if he was a vindictive, mean critter? But he didn't. He came humble and lowly. Like, that's the God we got to meet. This should be, again, this is where the songs come on in my head. Like, this is where you hear the, the final end of movie climax music it's like man this is jesus that's our god that we serve you could say this is the message of the god the good news is our god is not odin that's the good our god is jesus christ come incarnate yahweh and he loves us and he offers us rest that's the god we serve how great that that's the universe we live in right our god could have been like buddha and all he wants to do is eat and laugh. And there's no seriousness about them. There's no, there's no substance to him, right? But our God's Jesus. That's the good news. He came to, to die for us, not to come yell at us. That's Jesus. So you got these disciples coming in, literally telling the incarnate God how to do his ministry. And he's just like, relax, right? And you're, not, you're missing it. You're trying to do it by force. They make it so difficult. And then they put that burden on other people because it can't just be difficult for me. It's got to be difficult for everybody around me to do it my way, right? And he'll talk about that later in Matthew too. It's not just the works. It's the presumption that's the problem because he just told his disciples to go do good things, but do it with the right attitude. So the expectations become a burden and a chore, not love. And it's the begrudging ache of the soul that these people have to have. In context... The kingdom of heaven is forced and the forceful seize themselves by seizing it because they expect force. And then they bring that into the kingdom. And Jesus calls those who see that burden of sin, the burden of shame, the burden of doing it in a certain way as the burden of pleasing the world or pleasing others. And he says, just let that go. Labor and heavy laden are two different things, like teaching and preaching, two different ideas. Labor is the burdens we choose to do ourselves. Heavy laden is the burden that other people put on us. To labor and be heavy laden. And these are the religious jerks. 
Matthew 23, 4. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to the bone and grievous to be born. And they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. That's the Pharisees. Stop it. Leave people alone and let them seek their God. I will give you rest. I hear from Jesus is in the emphatic form. Read it like, I will give you rest. Not these two disciples of John, not these Pharisees. They don't give you rest. But Jesus says that in the Greek, it's the, the, the emphatic form of the word, the, the personal pronoun. I will give you rest. And Jesus and nobody else. This is like an exhale of sweet relief at the end of the chapter. I'll give you rest. That's the solution. Sure, chapter 10, we might get persecuted, but we get persecuted in rest. Let the persecution come because there's joy in the spirit. I just think that's such a neat idea. This is the thing that helps us overcome. So to cause or permit somebody to cease from labor and to recover their strength is the definition of rest. You get to take a break from all that. Step two, we learn. Take my yoke upon you. Imagine the harness for a team of oxen. One of the ways they would train in baby oxen is they'd put them next to an oxen that knew what they were doing. This is a mentor-mentee relationship. You put them under the same custom-fit piece of wood, and the custom-fit piece of wood fits perfectly on the strong oxen. But the new oxen that's got to learn how to plow and not kick against the goads, it doesn't quite fit. They're a little too small for that. So they don't even have to like push on that thing. But as the team goes forward, the harnessed, stronger oxen does 99% of the work. But the person just learns how to walk on the other side of that oxen. You just learn how to just go the route of the field. And they memorize the route of the field to where the farmer barely has to do anything. They're trained. So that's how they would train oxen. So when Jesus uses this image of the yoke, the same one that Jeremiah used, the way Jesus used it is, is actually if you yoke with me, I do everything. I do 100% of the work. You just got to learn how to walk. So you come to Jesus, then you learn, which is the image of the yoke. It's how they train their animals. Forget the yokes of John's disciples. Forget the yokes of the, the, the Pharisees. You have to be better than them. Yoke with me, and you have a chance at that. Right? Just learn the route that I want for you to have. Learn how to walk the fields. And he uses that image of harvest and fields all the time. And, and, then he, and in case you didn't get it, he says, and learn from me. So he's definitely making that metaphor here. God does everything. It's just our job to learn. Um, this is like, I think, when you get in the pool. This is a, it, when you get in a pool in the middle of a hot summer day, the first landing in that pool is this shock that hits you, and you start to cringe. And then once you're in it, you realize oh, this is really nice in here, and you can find rest. But it's getting in the pool that's the tough part. We should have grace for people when they're in that mode, even other people that are in religious systems. Getting in the pool and just realizing it's awesome. It, the water's fine. Come on in. And that's almost like our evangelism. So that idea of like um, jumping in the pool and, and inviting people to do it, but it's the same kind of argument, right? We don't do it by force. People got to get themselves in the pool. But you can tell people it's really nice in here and the yoke is easy, the burden is light. Uh, Jesus says, I'm, low, I'm, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Again, working off of that image with the yoke, oxen can be the opposite of that and you generally kill them and eat them. It's the gentle and lowly of heart oxens that you want to work with. 
You don't want to yoke with somebody who's mean and nasty and bites at you, like donkeys and horses that bite. You don't keep them around very long. But working with him is easy. There's this shock, and then there's pure joy when you get there. Choose to take the yoke. Choose to learn. And the equation of that for our generation is choose to read the Bible. Choose to actually hear what God has to say and take the time to do it. So Jesus tells them this little lovely, intimate secret. He's not here to dominate us. He's here to teach us. And I just, again, of all the gods that humans have come up with, that's completely the opposite of every one of those gods. That is not Allah, right? This is Yahweh, a very different God. The incarnate God actually understands our struggles because he's in the yoke with us. That's why he became incarnate. He gets it. Life sucks, and he's been here. It sucked worse for him than it did for us. So Jesus is lowly and gentle. He understands that. And, and how much more that he actually wants to be our teacher. So I just, I don't know, these last verses, like, and, and did you already start the soup? So the third one, and I'll kind of wrap up with this third idea, is you find rest with God. And I want to dwell on this a little bit, so it's not just me being wordy over a single idea. It's me sitting on this idea a little bit. To find rest for our souls. He's not talking about our physical lives, right? He's talking about our spiritual life. It's our soul that finds rest, but our body's got some work to do. So our physical, especially as we get older, like our body, that work gets harder and harder. Um, but this is the kind of rest we get. This is the end of the discussion on the heavenly economy from the last chapter. At the end of the day, you get this. That's the trade. You get rest. So it's about our spirits. It's about our heart. We get rest from uh, just a, a few thoughts of what do we get rest for? And I say, okay, I'm, I'm not trying to convict people in the room. This, I'm thinking about myself here. I get rest from my own selfishness gone, evaporates. Lord, take that away. I get rest from arrogance. I get rest from shame of sins I've committed. I'm just, I can let it go. I get rest from feeling broken or feeling insecure about different things. I get rest from expectations I have of myself and others. I can just let those go. I get rest from putting burdens on other people to get them to do what I want them to do. And I get rest from, and from feeling like I need to do what other people try to put on me. I'm not burdened by that. And some people are offended, some people are not, but I'm not going to be burdened by it. So I get rest from trying to force my way into heaven and realizing I can't do it. I can just let go of that. I don't have to do it. I get rest from trying hard and then falling short. I don't have to do any of that. And even better, I get rest from trying hard and succeeding. Like that's even a worse trap, at least for me sometimes, is that you actually accomplish things and then you realize there's no, God isn't there waiting for you. You put all that work and time in. And so I get, I get rest from futility. Greg Laurie, a uh, guy who does the Harvest Crusades, talks about when he prayed for salvation at age 16, he said the prayer, he felt nothing. Uh, he was a broken guy. He's cold-hearted. He said he said the prayer of salvation and he, and he felt nothing, but then he quickly noticed that that was a blessing in itself. He felt nothing. Nothing was weighing him down. He realized uh, even a day later that the burden that he felt in his life, and he says, quote, it was like a great weight was lifted. It wasn't like fireworks went off. It was much more subtle than that. It was like what was bugging him before just disappeared, and it was gone. And then he realized, I'm a different guy. I'm not walking around with a burden on my head. The perceptive Jesus, the, 
the image of the yoke and the burden is so God-inspired, it's exactly what salvation feels like. That you realize you've taken on the yoke of God and you realize it's not a burden at all. It actually releases you from your other yokes. And that's no yoke. Grant missed that one too. So one, two, three. Come, learn, rest. John's disciples want it their way. Jesus tells them there's another way. There's another way to do it, John's disciples. I almost want to name them. Sven and Oli. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy there is krestos, which means a good fit. Uh, Yokes were custom carved because they didn't want them to chafe the shoulders of the oxen. So they'd be tailor fit and then they'd be sanded smooth and then they would be finished. And they were custom made yokes. You made a yoke for the oxen. Each person that comes to follow Jesus, he's going to custom make your yoke. What a blessing that my God's that big of a God. If I just worry about my own yoke, I don't have to worry about others because he's making them a custom yoke too. Some people like heavy metal Christian music. Some people like choral Christian music. And God's going to fit that yoke to people where he wants them to serve and with the people he wants them to interact with. Easy doesn't just mean we're learning. Um, we're, we aren't learning. It, it means that we, we learn, but it's easy to do. And I think this is something you get from teacher training or pedagogy. You can learn easy or you can learn hard. And there are very different approaches psychologically. And easy learning happens, to, happens with laughter and with community and in social situations. Hard learning is straining and, hard, and difficult. And it's forced, like prepping for a test versus going to a, a, an event and seeing something happen. So this idea of easy here, crestos, is this, uh, th- this, this idea that it doesn't chafe and it doesn't hurt. It's actually a blessing. So in, just like in chapter 10, he gave all these instructions to the apostles. He sent them out, but it was a good fit for all 12 of those guys. It was exactly what they needed to be doing in the kingdom because they got the stuff he's teaching the crowds right now. Remember, the 12 disciples aren't here for chapter 11. They're off announcing themselves in these cities. So he's, he's talking to the people who, who still need a little more of this. The word light there, my burden is light, is, is not in like a physical light that we see with our eyeballs. The idea is a lifting of weight or a quickness or an agility. My, my yoke is easy. In, in, in other words, it's, um, it's, it's less than others, but it's also light. It's quick and agile and, and it's effervescent. Even the idea of light there being something that would be the opposite of gravity, a lightness of being. It actually lifts you up, which is where we get that language in the Christian church. I am lifted up. and We lift up God because he lifts us up. It's the opposite of heavy when we say that word. And heavy presses down and light lifts up. Simply nothing better on earth than to not only realize I don't have burdens, but to actually realize I'm actually lifted up by what God's given me. And that idea of a mature believer trying to express this with words, it's really hard. And Jesus just kind of nails it, which, you know, how nice to be God and you know exactly how to say this kind of thing. But there's no greater love There's no greater joy. There's no greater rest than what we have in God. And there's no greater lightness of being. The world is constantly trying to put burdens on us. Anxiety, stress, worry, frustration, or not. Or we just let all that go, right? Never being let down by an almighty God. Jesus never lets us down. That's the other thing. We can put our trust in him because he never 
doesn't do his job on his side of the yoke. And he offers us this relationship. So it's just, it's an amazing thing to rejoice. It's the difference between, I'd always say leaning forward in life versus leaning backwards. Toby Max says it's, it's the difference between got to and have to. Anything in life can be done as a have to, or it can be done as a get to. And that's a difference. It's a difference between childs and adults. Adults do things begrudgingly and out of duty and obligation. Believers do it because it's like, what does God have for me today? How do we do it? There's a hard way to live life, and there's a super easy way to live life. I remember when Grant was like a kid, and he had never seen a maze before, you know, on the back of the cereal box, those mazes. So we're at a restaurant, and he's like, what is this? And we're like, it's a maze. What do you do? You try to help mama bear get to baby bears in the maze. You see that? And so you got to just put your pencil on the paper, and without lifting your pencil, you got to find your way to the baby bears. Grant looks at it, takes his thoughtful look, and then he takes his pencil and does a big circle. And he found that he just goes around it. And it's when I hear Jesus saying this, he's dealing with all this stuff these disciples are trying to put, the John's disciples are trying to put on him. And the way he answers that question is just, let me do it. Let me lead in life. Let me decide how I'm going to conduct myself on planet Earth. Stop trying to tell me how to do it. There's an easy way or a hard way. And so welcome to the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom. Just take the route around the maze and skip it. The idea of rejoicing is a verb. Joy is a state of being, but to rejoice is a decision we make. It's something we choose. We can choose to live life in worry and anxiety. We can choose to just be joyful and just let it all go. That's not a passive, fatalistic attitude at all because it has complete direction and purpose behind it. But we choose to just live that way. And we just do it. It's a direct line to having our soul on fire because when we yoke with God, we get to walk the fields with him. And then you see stuff happen. And then that's amazing because it reaffirms your faith. It gets way easier the longer you're in the yoke with him. We wear those yokes in. And we live life doing it. It's just a beautiful thought. So how's that for a ton of stuff in a one Sunday morning? Let's pray. God, I'm so glad you finished the chapter on the note that you did. Uh, Lord, we could leave here today thinking about the woe to the cities. We could leave thinking about not dancing when the flute played. We could leave knowing how much we miss as a human race and just looking at our own individual souls and we could just be burdened with what we think the kingdom should be doing in our life and what it is doing in our life. And we could just choose, Lord, to be so wrapped up in that. But praise God that you wrote your word in such a way and you inspired the people who put the chapters in. So they ended this chapter on this kind of note. Or we can choose your yoke and just take on an easy burden and a lightness, Lord, that your burden's easy and it's light. Or we just praise you for that. We thank you that you're not a God that's here to condemn and to, to curse. Um, Lord, that the woes and the warnings aren't the only things you bring. You also bring a way and you bring a path that leads to life uh, and eternal life. And Lord, we thank you for that. We just thank you for that blessing. We thank you, God, that you came as your son and you gave yourself as a living sacrifice for us. And Lord, we can't think of anything else that we can do to, to match the gift that you gave to us. It's our reasonable service to give you our life, to take on the burden that you want to give us, and Lord, to just live our life with you and with each other. Lord, help us to never be a burden to other people, 
Help us to never put stuff on other people, Lord, that we that we uh, that you haven't put on them. So Lord, help us to just be a blessing to love one another, even if we don't like one another. Sometimes that's harder than other times, but Lord, let us just be a blessing. Lord, help us to feel sorry for John's disciples here and not to accuse them or or just the the sadness of heart you must have had when they walked away. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, you help us to feel that way with people in our life that are struggling with how to perceive you and how to mix their own expectations with what you have. Lord, help us to be graceful with those people. Help us to invite them in and to try to explain as best we can what you've done in our life uh, and to just keep offering the invitation. Um, Lord, we love you. Thank you. Be with us this week. May your Holy Spirit be on us as we fellowship and have an agape feast for lunch together in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.